This episode is brought to you in partnership with Autodesk, NVIDIA, Dell Technologies, Garden Studios, Epic Games, and Unreal Engine. Hello, and welcome back to Future of Film Podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz. And as regular listeners will know, this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, the trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping film's future. And today's guest, I am delighted to welcome Houston Howard to the show. Houston is chief storyteller at One Three Creative Transmedia Design Firm, and he's co-founder of Fulcrum Well Builders, an organization that designs large-scale story worlds that are meant to shift culture and catalyze large-scale social impact. He has given so much thought to this area of transmedia, of cross-platform, of multi-format storytelling. And he's written three books on the subject, including You're Gonna Need a Bigger Story. I recently read this, I loved it, I highly recommend it. He is also Professor of Transmedia Storytelling and World Building at the Art Centre College of Design and host of the Super Story Podcast. In this conversation, we discuss how creators can, well, in Houston's words, attack the market. What are the creative and commercial strategies that set them apart in this ever-increasing ocean of content. Houston's energy and passion for storytelling, as well as his advice and strategy, are contagious and compelling. And I really hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I did recording it. If you are enjoying the show, just want to find out more about Future of Film, head on over to futureoffilm.live. You can check out all of the podcast episodes, explore some of our other resources like The Summit, Future of Film Report, and Future of Film Incubator. And now, new this year, we have Future of Film Inside. This is our special membership program, which gives you the opportunity to get the inside track on Future of Film. There are a range of plans and benefits available, including access to exclusive content, networking sessions, and events. So if the future of film or the future of screen storytelling is important to you and your work, this is an unmissable opportunity. So do check out Future of Film Inside and our other resources at futureoffilm.live. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening. And now please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Houston Howard. And I started the conversation by asking Houston exactly what a story architect is. It really involves the discipline of transmedia storytelling. Uh, I found transmedia to be a clunky term that that uh, doesn't necessarily communicate everything you want to communicate. So, uh, so I started calling it a super story. Uh, super being something bigger uh, than one thing. And so, uh, what I what I specialize in is being able to create and craft story and tell stories 
over multiple mediums in a way where all these stories work together for one bigger experience. And so uh, being able to create that and design that, create that and execute that is uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different type of skill set than just looking at a single story. So uh, so that's why I reposition it as a super story architect, because a lot of it is is like you're building something bigger. Uh, it's not just sort of freelance, uh, you know, like jazz music, you just kind of build it as you go. Uh, a lot of it is uh, very tactical, a lot of uh, strategy that goes into it, narrative strategy, uh, narrative design. Uh, but at the same time, it's still a big story that you're telling. So, uh, so yeah, I tried to position Superstore Architect to be that 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 role of creating something bigger than just one thing. I think it's a great it's a great way of framing it. Because um, you think about architecture, you know, you think about the foundations, you think about the design, and that does seem like, you know, the, in, in your book, it really does take people through that step-by-step process, doesn't it, in terms of this is where you need to, this is, these are the foundations you need to start with, and then this is how you kind of, you build it out. Sure. Um why why do you think uh why are you passionate about this i suppose and why do why yeah. do you think it's why is it important today so i'm 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 a fan of uh big ip and uh i grew up a child of the late 80s and 90s and so i grew up on you know star wars and lord of the rings and uh teenage mutant ninja turtles and gi joe and he-man and so all those seminal uh you know those 80s and 90s ip and um so, you know, in today, big fan of Game of Thrones and, you know, big stuff like that, like really big fan of, of, of what Marvel's doing. And uh, and so generally, I'm a fan of that type of storytelling and that type of stuff. Um, and, and what's interesting, you know, still a big Star Wars fan, um, you know, when it comes to the architect thing, George Lucas, as a kid, never necessarily wanted to be a filmmaker. He always wanted to be an architect. That was actually his his, his first passion was was uh, was being an architect. And um, he kind of fell into filmmaking in college because he had a mind for editing and he understood sort of how to piece it together. But really, his first passion was architecture. Um, and then every summer while he was a kid, he would uh, work at his dad's toy store. So finally, when he went into uh, filmmaking, he went into filmmaking with the mind of an architect and a really good idea of how to sell toys. And all of a sudden, you know, innovated, innovated the, the industry in, in a million different ways. And so I like that approach to uh, I like that architectural approach to entertainment because um, because it, 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 it really forces you to think a little bit differently about what what you're doing and why you're doing it um but i so so i'm passionate because that's the way my brain works but then also you know like i said i've been a fan of this type of content for you know you know, you know my whole life um and then really uh i got into it into this space because i just wanted to make stuff i was a fan of uh, and so i i didn't even know transmedia was a, a discipline necessarily and and so when i went to find out, okay, how do I express something across multiple platforms? How do I create Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And how, do I, how do I create Star Wars? And it was difficult to be able to do that. I, I didn't realize until I tried to do it how difficult it was to be able to maintain continuity and have these stories work together in a bigger thing. And understanding the unique idiosyncratic languages of each medium and platform. And so I went on about a two-year research project, one, looking at all the multi-platform projects that I could find, what made them work, what 
what what didn't work, what were the creative choices, business choices that they made that that worked or didn't work. Uh, but then I also started seeking out you know thought leaders in this space, and and a lot of it was rooted in academia and and, and a lot of you know, sort of esoteric thought. I'm a practical guy, and so I I went to a lot of conferences and seminars and master classes, and a lot a lot of people were just asking a lot of questions, which is fine, and pontificating about you know certain things, and uh, but I just really wanted a roadmap of like okay, like how do I get really brass tacks like what what are, what's a way forward and there wasn't a lot of that for me at that at that time and this was you know uh, several you know years ago when when you started seeing a lot of innovation around the matrix and uh, you know a lot of people using a lot of different platforms in a lot of really cool ways um and uh you know the blair witch project doing some early innovation you know with how to uh blur the line between film and uh, you know, web content and things like that and so uh so after I went on my research project, I started to kind of pull out principles and patterns of the projects that did it really well. And I started pulling out principles and patterns of the ones that didn't do it well. And that led me to writing my first book, Make Your Story Really Stinking Big, that I published through Michael Weesey, which was basically like, hey, the, the, you know, the, the, the top 20 multi-platform projects that we all know all did these eight things. And so being the genius that I am, I decided I will always do those eight things. And, and the, the worst projects that didn't work did these 10 things. Uh, and so I'm going to avoid those 10 things. And I put it all together in a book and, and published my first book that way. And, and so that really led me to, to not just creating my own stuff, but working with other creators on how to then navigate that the ideation uh, process, the uh, the world building process, the the tactical strategy of of, of how to get these things to work together? Because um, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of small things that 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 can really super fuel a project, and there's a, a lot of mistakes that you can make that can really hurt a project. I, one of the first things I worked on was uh, Monster High with um, with Mattel, and um, you know they had they had a multi platform project with books and uh, video games and cartoons and uh, a web series and they weren't getting migration of the audience. So, so fans of the book weren't watching the cartoon and fans of the cartoon weren't reading the books and they really couldn't understand why. And then you dug into the creative and you figured out there were, there were continuity issues uh, in the book. This one thing was this one way, but then in the cartoon, it was completely different and the Lego blocks didn't fit together. And whenever you have Lego blocks that don't fit together, the structure you're trying to build just falls over. And, and, and so, so it's this really interesting intersection of, of sort of tactical narrative design, but also like really sort of Tolkien-esque world building that goes into a lot of this stuff. Um, and and, and you, you sit there at the intersection because you have to have the creative to make the strategy work, but then you have to have good strategy to make the creative work as well. So, um, so it's, it's like a weird creative puzzle for me. So I, you know, and that's the way my brain works. I like to approach it like that. It's uh, it, it's it's a fascinating puzzle, and um, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? But old audiences can tell, like they may not better put their finger on it, but they can tell when something's not right. You know, when when there isn't yeah. that continuity, it just it doesn't it just doesn't feel complete. Yeah, it's 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 huge, especially in today, and it's vitally important in today's era of Twitter and subreddit threads. If you don't get the you know, like you go back to the 90s, like, and, and you would screw up continuity, you know, people would gripe to their friends about it at the mall. 
but now, you know, all of a sudden, by the end of the episode, there's, you know, you know, 10,000 comments on Twitter, uh, ripping, ripping your stuff apart, because all of a sudden, they're, they're picking out continuity errors. I mean, you're, you're starting to see this now, even in, you know, uh, with, with Star Wars and the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. Yeah, I think the Obi-Wan Kenobi show has been great so far. Um, but still, there are 1000s of people that are just like, uh, have it under the microscope, trying to pick out every little thing that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't completely match up to, you know, except, you know, the, the 70s film and thing like that. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it's, you know, audiences are more sophisticated and more weaponized uh, in a way uh, than they've ever been before. And uh, they trade on finding the stuff that doesn't work. And so you have to be, you know, you have to step up your game as a storyteller to make sure those Lego blocks fit. Uh, because if they don't, not only will you suffer narratively, but I think you also suffer in the court of public opinion because you're going to see a subreddit thread just kind of tearing your stuff apart. And that's obviously not fun for anybody. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so d- about about you know I, I understand that sort of the passion and it, it's, it's incredibly exciting. But what what about the market? I mean, how does um, sure. in, in your uh, in your book uh, to quote from your book is, is what this means in the entertainment marketplace? Um, sorry, the entertainment marketplace is especially primed for those storytellers who understand the power and vi- uh, viability of not just a great story, but a great story world. Sure. What is it? Yeah. What is it? Why is the entertainment marketplace particularly looking for those kind of stories or projects rather now? Sure. So uh, it is for one big reason. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a big clunky word called commoditization. So right now the first, for the first time in human history, the entertainment market is commoditized what's called uh, being commoditized and so what that means is there's an oversaturation and a hyper competition in the space and so what happens when you know a certain type of product uh or uh, uh thing is launched in the market um there is a time when something new is invented when a lot of people can't duplicate it because te- technology hasn't been democratized or or, or whatever, uh, there's, there's just not a lot of competition, and that's awesome. When it gets to a point where technology is democratized, to where everybody can make that same thing, then there's you know a zillion knockoffs of that same thing, which leads you into commoditization. So no, uh, so commoditization is is where there's oversaturation, hyper competition. You're no longer unique. Uh, it, there's, there's just a million versions of you and you have to figure out how to stand out, uh, throughout human history, entertainment has never really been commoditized, uh, because, um, technology, primarily because technology has never been democratized to where people didn't have the tools to create movies. Uh, they didn't have the tools to create and release their own music. They didn't have the tools to create and distribute their own comic books. They couldn't self-publish their own novels. They couldn't do any of that stuff. Uh, it was all that technology was, was centered on the, you know, the big five book publishers or the big five movie studios uh, that, that cornered the market on the technology to create. And especially the technology that it takes to distribute the content, even if you can make it. And so, uh, so, so there was always a limited amount of entertainment content in the market. Um, you know, I mean, you know, when, you know again, growing up in the nineties, there was, there was stuff, right. Uh, there, there were, there were movies and there were video games and there were books, but not as much as what we have now. I mean, if you think about in the video game sector, um, you know, there were probably 
a hundred Nintendo games I could play as a kid. And that was it, right? Like that was, you know, now there's, there's like, you know, a hundred thousand new video games released every month across mobile to all the way up to console games. It's absolutely crazy. And so if you look at the amount of film and television content, video game content, book, books that are published, comic books that are being released, there's this giant flood, a tsunami of entertainment that's hitting the market every single day, and it's never happened before in human history. It's, and it's because the the miracle of the internet and the fact that you know uh, camera phones have been have have are you know are so great now. Uh, the you know the, the fact that you can record a uh, your own album in the in in the comfort of your own home with whatever you have in your book bag. Uh, the, the fact that uh, you know your laptops are these incredible machines that can do about anything that we want. So we all have access to this now, which means we can publish our own books. We can make and distribute our own comic books. We can we can create our own digital content, our short films, our feature films. We can put stuff up on Amazon Prime if we want to ourselves without an agent, things like that. Like we don't have to have distribution deals for stuff. And all of a sudden, in an era where everybody can make stuff, everybody is making stuff. And so now we have ultimate hyper-competition in the marketplace. So what that means is, we now need a different strategy to compete because if you look at all the other industries in life, whenever an industry becomes commoditized, the companies that navigate that industry shift their strategy. And uh, so if you look at some like computers or cell phones, cell phones are commoditized, computers are commoditized. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the companies that are succeeding are shifting their strategy of how to best compete in a commoditized market, which is a, it was a completely different strategy. If you're not in a commoditized market, you don't have to do a lot of this stuff. But if you're in a commoditized market, you have to now think differently than ever before. And so a lot of what I do is is I look at how, you know, look at how Apple competes in the uh, in the computer uh, industry and the phone market and, you know, uh, how, uh, uh, people compete in the potato chip industry and the retail, uh, um, you know, t-shirt industry, anything that becomes commoditized, how do entrepreneurs find their way through? And when, when I started to do that, I realized, wait a minute, they're using such a different strategy than entertainment producers typically use. And if we can start to port the wisdom of an entrepreneurial brand, into the entertainment space, it really starts to take a different form, which is this form of this diversified transmedia model, uh, which is which is super cool and really interesting. And so, so I think you know, right now, it's not even just a luxury. Like when I kind of got started in this, it was still kind of like it would be cool to make something like The Matrix or the, it'd be cool to make something like Star Wars. Now, because we have our streaming wars and all this stuff that's hit in the market. Uh, now I think it's more of a necessity. You got to figure out how to survive in a commoditized marketplace, which means you have to start thinking diversification and synergy between the products and all these different things in order to just stand out. Somebody somebody mentioned to me not too long ago. They said it, you know releasing a movie in today's market is like being a needle in a haystack, and I and I actually don't agree with that. I think releasing a movie in today's market is like being a needle in a needle stack. Because if you're a needle in a haystack, at least you're unique. But if but if you release a horror movie in today's market, like guess what? There's a thousand horror movies that are all being released in the same month as you in what some platform all around the world that's vying for the attention of the attention of the audience. And all of a sudden, you're no longer unique at all. 
And it's just, it's a bigger problem. And it's, and it's now not to say that you shouldn't make your horror movie. You need to make your horror movie because that's what's in your heart to make. But now we got to figure out a different way forward in order to, to, to compete. You know, I had a lemonade stand when I was a kid. Right on the food, I had a lemonade stand. I did a lemonade stand as a kid, as a kid, and I was the only lemonade stand in my neighborhood. And so all of a sudden, like I had that the, the neighborhood on lockdown for anybody that wanted lemonade, right? But just imagine if I walked out one day and there was two other lemonade stands in the neighborhood. Like, okay, you know, I can I can probably out compete and out lemonade two other kids, right? I'll make mine a little bit sweeter, drop my price from 50 cents to a quarter. Like I could figure out how to compete against two others. But then I walk out another day and there's a hundred lemonade stands in my neighborhood. Then I walk out the next day and there's 10,000 lemonade stands just in my neighborhood. Now at that point, you have to realize there, I can't approach my lemonade business in the same way. Like I have to now pivot my thinking. I want to make lemonade because it's in my heart to make lemonade. So I'm not trying to tell anybody not to make lemonade. I'm saying the way you approach your lemonade business has to be completely different, else you're going to be swallowed up by the other lemonade stands. And and that's the thing that I think that mentality of of, of shifting from I'm the only lemonade tan, uh, uh, lemonade stand in town to now I got to compete in a commoditized lemonade market. That mentality shift is what creators really have to do in order to, I think, better compete in the commoditized landscape. It's a really long way to answer your question, but 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 that's, I think it's just a necessity to, to figure out that thinking. Yeah, uh, that's it's a great, it's a great answer. And I love the, uh, the needle in the needle stack. Um, yes. That's brilliant. Um, it's, it, it, yeah, it feels like a shift um from storyteller to storyteller stroke entrepreneur is that kind of sure yeah yeah absolutely and and you know uh you know my brother my brother's a chef right and he uh he loves the art the culinary art of making food but when he went to go start his own restaurant he quickly realized that in order to be the owner of a restaurant an entrepreneur of the restaurant you now have to have other responsibilities and you have to think about other things. So like how he was like, he was, he told me, he said, Houston, I have to like, I have to like talk to cash register people because there's all these different cash registers do different things. I don't want to listen. I don't want to think about cash registers. I don't want to think about having to order all the stuff and the different front of house stuff. And I have to figure out like, you know, how to pay the electric bill. There's all these other things that he had to figure out just to be able to launch the restaurant. And he was like, all I want, all I want to do is, is uh is is cook food and i was like well that's great if all you want to do is cook food then you can be a chef at somebody else's restaurant and that's fine there's no judgment against that like that's that's normal there's so many people do that but if you want to do your own thing and have your own restaurant that necessarily requires you to now broaden the scope of your thinking to incorporate some other skills and 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 to diversify your own skill set and then to be that chef slash entrepreneur and i think the same thing is is with storytellers is 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 you have if if you want to write on assignment other people's movies and if you want to uh be a ghostwriter for other people's books or or an editor or uh if you want to work on other people's movies as a crew member things like that that's awesome that's 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 no problem at all like there's no judgment that. but for me i i I want to create my own stuff and tell my own stories that are in my own heart, that's in my own heart. 
And, and in order to do that, you, you have to have a different thinking. I know so many writers here in Hollywood that, that they're staffed on other people's shows and it's awesome to have staff jobs, but they're secretly kind of sad, which is a super first world problem. They're secretly kind of sad, like, because they have scripts that they have, that they want to sell, that they, they have in their heart, that they have in their mind. And, and, and ultimately you could be working on someone else's show, but if you have stuff that's in your heart that you want to be a creator, an actual original creator, working on other people's stuff is, is, is will never be as satisfying. Uh, and, and if that's, if you're one of those people that, that needs to tell their own stories in order to be satisfied, you have to adopt that storyteller slash entrepreneur mindset in order to compete in a commoditized market. You're listening to Future of Film podcast with me, Alex Stoltz. Thank you for listening. I hope you are enjoying the show. If you want to find out more about what we do at Future of Film, head on over to futureoffilm.live. Here you can find out all about the Future of Film incubator, access our free reports, videos, and all of the podcasts, of course. And new for this year, we also have a Future of Film Insight for those of you who are really passionate about the future of screen storytelling and want to have the inside track on everything we do, including priority access to content and exclusive networking events. So do check that out at the home of Future of Film. That's futureoffilm.live. So I'm buying it, Houston. this, This sounds like... Great advice. When you're working with uh, storytellers or or brands, I think you work with a lot. What are, what yeah, are the sort of, what are the steps you take them through to get them along this process? So the first step I I encourage people to do is one just education, and you, you have to like the biggest step is to uh, is to increase your vision of you have to you have to think of yourself either as a brand or a storyteller as something more uh than just the storyteller and uh in getting people to that mindset is the biggest part of it uh because so many people think i'm just i'm just a screenwriter that that's what i am i'm just a screenwriter and so what i typically do uh when i'm working with creators especially independent creators is i initially try to mine their own talents. I think that's the first step is, is, is trying to figure out what else they're good at and what else, what else do you do? Because regular people uh, are good at multiple things. And, uh, and and I know like, you know, the industry and life tries to put us in a box, but, but more people are, are, you know, most people are polymaths in some way to where they're screenwriters, but then they also can do a couple different things, right? They're, they're screenwriters that also can create a website and, and they're screenwriters that, that also can write short stories and, and prose, right? Um, uh, I was talking to a, uh, um, to a filmmaker about this in uh, New York City and, and, and I, said, uh, I said, what else are you good at? And she said, well, I am a poet and I also paint like fine art paintings, right? And I said, awesome, let's start there. That's step one. Let's just start with your own talents. Uh, Before we have to like learn new things and learn new skills, uh, let's just start there. So every movie you ever make for the rest of your life, you need to create a pop-up art exhibit 
that of paint original paintings that you create that extend the story of your movie maybe it answers an unanswered question it tells more about a character's backstory uh something that that connects it to the movie and you launch that pop-up art pop-up art exhibit ahead of the release of your movie but then you also do a book of poetry that you could self-publish on amazon and that poetry also extends the story of your movie and also connects back in to your uh to your painting and uh, and and all of a sudden you've created a little bit of an ecosystem of content and so there are people that will watch your movie that will want an extended engagement an extended experience and so then you can flow them to narratively incentivize them to go check out the art exhibit, check out the book of poetry that extends the story in, uh, in, in some way. But then there's also people that have never heard about your movie before because of the commoditized film market that may uh, uh, stumble upon your art exhibit, or maybe they're just art fans that don't watch a lot of movies. They find the art, that art becomes an entry point to then lead them back to the film, to lead them to the poetry. And there's some people that won't find the art or the, or the, or the movie, but then find the poetry on Amazon. And all of a sudden they're incentivized to check out the art and the film. And you've created that little ecosystem of content. And guess what? Here's the cool thing is not only is the film industry commoditized with content, the filmmaker industry is commoditized with people. And so how many, how many independent filmmakers are in New York City? Thousands and thousands, right? How many independent filmmakers do fine art and books of poetry for every single movie release? None, or actually one now, right? And, and so all of a sudden, she, she will have separated herself from the filmmaker community and starts to, to, to now stand out as the needle in the haystack, right? Rather than the needle in the needle stack, which I think it's better to be a needle in a haystack. I was talking to another uh, a video game developer that had the same conversation with, with him. I said, what are you good at? Because he makes, he makes mobile games in Europe and uh, indie mobile games. He says, I can make websites because that's his day job. He makes websites. Uh, and I'm a music producer. Uh, he does like uh, electronic music. And I said, awesome. Every single game you make, for the rest of your life, you're going to do a tie-in website that extends the narrative of the game. And then you're also going to release a concept album or a concept EP, even just a single that somehow extends the, uh, the, the, uh, the story of the game, creating the ecosystem of content. Uh, some people will find the music first and then go to the game and then go, go, go to, the, uh, to the website. Some people may stumble on the website, depending on your SEO and all that, uh, and then to the game and then to the music. Some people will start with the game and they can go to both. And he said, Houston, nobody does that. And I said, exactly. That's the whole point. How many people just do the video game? How many game developers are in Europe doing indie mobile games? And he said, thousands. I said, perfect. And nobody's doing this. It's exactly why you should do it because you're still making video games, the exact, the, which is the thing you have in your heart that you want to do. But you've now not only created more entry points for new audience that helps you better compete in the commoditized game environment, but you've separated yourself as a brand, as somebody that you can that can do different things and provide a different experience. And guess what? This is the punchline. You don't even have to go out of your own skill set to do it. Like these are things you're already good at. Right. And so, so, you know, working with, with studios and other companies and things like, and brands, like that's my whole first, my, my first question is like, oh, what else do y'all do? Like, well, we have a publishing division. 
Uh, and I'm like, great, great, great. Let's like pull the publishing side over and see if we can have some publishing connection uh, connections to the film that you're making, uh, you know, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just first mine our own skills and our own uh, uh, capabilities. And we find that we're more capable than we think. Right. So that's always my first step. Look at your own own talent. And then once you mine your own talent, then it's a process of like, OK, what else can I tackle on that maybe I have to learn? And this is the cool thing about like today's uh, democratized technology market is that YouTube is the greatest uh, uh, educational platform on the planet. Because if you don't know how to create a podcast, guess what? There's about like 300,000 YouTube videos on how to make a podcast. Right. You can download the uh, the anchor app on your iPhone, which is 100 percent for free. And you can record a podcast and you can distri distribute it on Spotify and Apple uh, iTunes uh, completely for free. Worldwide distribution completely for free for the podcast. And there's YouTube videos that tell you how to do it. Add that to your skill set. It's super easy. People typically don't want to take the seven to 12 to 17 hours to learn a new skill. But, 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 you know, technology is, is, is so incredible in a lot of ways. If you do that, if you take that 17, 27 hours, 70 hours to learn this new skill, it can be, you know, you may not be a professional podcaster. You may not become Joe Rogan, uh, but it, it, it'll allow you to be functional in a way that can expand the brand in a way that you didn't expect. Right. So mine your skills, add some, uh, extra skills to your skill set, to your Batman belt, so to speak, and then find collaborators. Once, you, If you don't want to learn anything else, find collaborators. So all of a sudden, Alex, I'm sure you do things that I don't do. And and Amy does things that, that I don't do and you don't do. And Martin does things that, that I don't do and you don't do and Amy doesn't do. And all of a sudden, if we all come together, we become the Avengers of whatever project that we're working on. And, and I can say, Martin, you do this and Amy do this and Alex do this and I'll do these things. And all of a sudden, we now have a little diversified brand that better helps us uh, compete in the commoditized market. And we don't have to have a Star Wars size budget to do it. Right. And so um, so I think it's a really exciting time now. It, it, it requires you to, you know, talk to people and network and collaborate with people. But like all of y'all are hungry to to break in. There's so many people that are hungry to break in. If you find three or four or five people that you trust, man, figure out how to cr especially cross platform collaboration. Go and find some game developers and some musicians that are hungry to break in the music industry, hungry to break into the game industry. Find an author that's really itching to kind of break into the publishing space, right? And all of a sudden you say, hey, you want to break into publishing? I want to break into film. Let's work together all in one story world where you can write the book in the story world and I can make the movie in the story world. And, and then the synergy can combine it. And then all of a sudden we can go to Tony and Tony's going to do this other thing. And Emily's going to do this other thing. And all of a sudden we have a new thing, right? Uh, and so, I'll, you know, so I think there's like, there's there's stages. Mind your own talents, add to your own talents, and then reach out for collaboration. And um, you know, I think I think you can do a lot more than 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 you than than you think. And that same process is the same as I'm working with a big production company or an individual. It's the same thought process, maybe just scaled a little bit differently. Yeah, I love it. And it's, it's like you say, it's scalable. I, this is great. I, I want to ask about um financing because you know it's uh it's important <laughs> to understate to understate it and how do you how do you find that financiers or studios or or brands even respond to these kind of strategies because i'm my feeling is that some of them 
it so, so, so if you approach some of them with a story world, they just wouldn't know how to invest in that. Whereas some of them might understand it better. What's sure. your experience? So, so there's there's a couple different I think nuances to this. It's a really really super important question to ask because, uh, you know, right now in the marketplace, there's there's a trend of studios acquiring story worlds on spec even outside of any individual story. They'll just see a story world that's presented in a short film or a story world presented in an animatic and uh, or, or just a story world Bible, and they'll make an acquisition for that outside, even if it doesn't have a script along with it. And it's a really interesting trend that's happening now. Uh, and so, the, so studios look at story worlds as as uh, the tapestry that they can, they can, if they acquire the story world, they're going to hire some studio writer uh, uh, to be able to write that anyway. Like even if you go sell a script to a studio, um, th- that script that you sell to a studio probably isn't going to be the script that goes to screen. They're going to get, you know, it's going to be rewritten 20 times by, by you know, different writers until they find the perfect one based on those writers that have written for the studios before. Just the way the studio game works. And so right now there's acquisitions just in the story worlds, which is really interesting. Um, but outside of that, when you're talking to a specific financer, I have found that financers actually respond better to this model than, than a traditional model because it goes in line more and more with traditional investment wisdom so uh so you know i'm originally from uh, a, sta- a state here in 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 the states called kentucky right so kentucky is sort of a rural part of, of 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 the united states and in kentucky there's there's some country wisdom that says don't put all your eggs in one basket right and so the reason you don't pay, put your eggs in one basket as the saying goes is if you drop the basket you lose all the eggs right so so old like country farmers understand the wisdom of that stockbrokers also uh, and financers understand the wisdom of that and which is why you always all the stockbrokers and all these financiers, they all have what's called a diversified portfolio, right? Have you ever heard that term, diversified portfolio? And so the reason you have a diversified portfolio is because you don't want to put all your money into one stock. You put all your money into one stock, all of a sudden, that money is more at risk than it would be if you diversified the portfolio and has some money in tech and some money in oil, natural gas, and some in you know precious metals and et cetera, et cetera. Like if I just said, hey, Alex, I'm going to take, uh, if you're my financial advisor, and I would say, I'm going to take my, my all my retirement and my whole like nest egg and everything that I own, and I'm going to put all of it into Zoom. And I'm going to like invest into Zoom. And um, you would probably say, Houston, Zoom's great right now because of COVID, but maybe you shouldn't put all your money in Zoom because what happens when technology shifts or culture shifts or we all go back into the world uh, outside of COVID and, and, and all of a sudden you could lose all that money, it's too risky, right? That's the way normal financiers think. So all of a sudden, when you go to a, a, a financer and say, hey, I have one movie and I want you to take you know, $10 million and I want you to invest it in my one movie, you're asking that financer, necessarily asking that financer to take 10,000 eggs and put them into one basket. And all of a sudden, if the movie works, great, muscle top, that's amazing. But that, that, the, those 10,000 eggs are at risk because if for whatever reason it doesn't work, which the reasons that movies don't work far exceed the reasons why it would work, uh, especially in a commoditized market, then, then all of a sudden, that financer is out of all that money. And so to be able to go to, I, mean, I had a financer tell me specifically, he, he said, Houston, never 
never bring me one project. He said, always bring me 10 projects. He said, because if you bring me 10 projects, I know out of the 10 projects that four of them are going to lose money. Three of them maybe will break even. And then hopefully three of them will overperform in a way that subsidizes the losses of the rest. He said, that's much a better model for me, right? Which is actually how studios, studios, that, that's the way it's, it's called the resource allocation model. So it, that's the way they allocate resources in, in the studio system to make their movies. They know if they release 20 movies in a year, they know that all those 20 movies aren't going to make money. They know that 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 12 of them are all going to lose money. You know, four of them are going to break even. And they just hope that four overperform to subsidize the loss of the rest. So, so that's the way the studios think already. That's the way financiers think already because they want that diversified portfolio. And all of a sudden, the reason independent creators don't have as much, as much success finding financing for their films is because, because they're operating in models that traditional financiers and studios don't operate in. You're asking these people to take all their hard-earned money and put it into one basket, and it's too risky. So you need to figure out a way to diversify the offering so that you can what's called hedge the investment to make that investment uh, uh, more secure. So if for some reason, the, the, the movie doesn't work and the movie loses money, there's a couple other things that can actually overperform to help subsidize that loss. Right. So I know like some of the like the pure the pure creatives and the pure filmmakers in here are like when they hear like subsidize and, you know, diversification and investment, like it starts to grade against your thinking. But the more we as creatives start to to think about this stuff, the better we can tailor our creative for the people to finance. And then 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 we're in business. Yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um but when when a financier makes that investment, what are they investing in? Are they because they are they investing in the IP? Is it more like a business investment rather than a single project? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So so if I want, it depends. I mean, honestly, it depends on the investor. But like, yeah. but but under this paradigm, typically. Uh, part of that value proposition to the investor is if you invest into the brand, if you invest into the IP, and IP is the same as brand. So, I, you know, brand is sort of the business version of IP. So if you invest in, in the IP or the brand, you're now investing in the in the profits of everything. And so if the podcast pops off and if the, if the, if the YouTube channel pops off, if the, if the movie works, if the book sells, you're now participating in the revenue of all that. Uh, and so then it, it, it becomes... It's like it's like I want you to I want you to uh, uh, invest into my um, into my coffee shop, and if when I find an investment to launch a coffee shop, that investor participates in the revenue of the coffee, of the tea, of the scones, of the you know whatever we the t shirts that we sell, any of the diversified product lines that we offer within that brand that uh, the 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 investor participates in, and that's normal. And so structuring the venture that way, I think, is 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 wise but you have to have the strategy to do it here's the thing if, if you don't have understand the strategy of it then it just seems like you want a lot of money to do a lot of stuff which will never work with with an investor it has to be very tactical and say okay this here's the seven things that we want to do uh well, for the first two years we're going to release these three things and then these three things are going to be in the market 
for, for two years and we're really going to mine those things. We want to get to this certain benchmark of a community of audience. And then once we hit this benchmark, then we're going to release the next two things and mine those for another year and a half or two years. And then long term, if everything goes well, then we want to release these three other things that are a little bit bigger, a little bit more ambitious, but we're only going to do those later. And then tactically, here's how all these things work together and this one is going to be targeting a different fan base and this is going to be targeting a different fan base and narratively how these things work together and if you understand the strategy behind it all then it becomes more palatable for the financer it's now a systems approach to ip than just i want a bunch of money to do a bunch of stuff and tell a bunch of stories because that that's that's typically how it can come across if you don't know if you don't understand the strategy yeah Amazing. And just one, this has been fascinating. Just one final question and uh, take it any way you, you like, Houston. What, what, would be your, what would be your advice to an emerging, emerging storyteller? What would be the first, I guess, you know, the first couple of steps they should take in this area? Sure. I think uh, looking, at, um, uh, looking at projects that have, um, that have have diversified and scaled in a really interesting way. Um, you know, things like um, Video Palace, or the, actually the creators of Blair Rich Project started as a podcast and then moved into publishing and now we're on the way to a, to a feature film. Exploding Kittens is a, is a game that launched as a, as a board game and then, you know, is now going to have their own cartoon series. And so, you know, how do, how do I just attack the market in a small way? And so I think... The, the the obstacle a lot of people have is thinking like okay I don't have a Star Wars size budget I don't have uh, I don't have a, a Marvel size budget how do I do this uh, and, and and if they they think if they have big vision they have to execute in a big way so I have a big vision and a big story world and a big story I want to tell uh, so I need two hundred million dollars to do it that creates such a high barrier to entry, it's, it's almost impossible to get over. Um, and so they say, well, if I have to execute small, then they shrink their vision accordingly. Say, okay, well, I can only do a short film right now, or I can only you know, do this, or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, I could just self-publish my own book and that's all I can do. And so they shrink the size of their vision. I think the sweet spot is to have big vision. Think like big, you know, it doesn't have to, everything doesn't have to be Star Wars and everything doesn't have to be Marvel. You don't have to have zombies. Like, you know, there's a more nuanced conversation that we could have at a later date about like this model works for zombies and superheroes and, you know, space operas, but it also works for workplace dramas. I don't know if anybody watched Severance on Apple TV. Uh, Severance is an awesome concept that uses the same world building techniques as marvel and tolkien and c.s lewis it's just scaled and kind of positioned a little different but the dna is the same but i think if you have big vision and then small execution that's the sweet spot to attack the market and so you have a big idea and then say okay how do i have this big idea and they start to seed that big idea uh, uh, in the form of a podcast and short stories on Wattpad and and cartoons on Webtoon. And I'm going to make all those things work together and I'm going to just hustle it and grind it out to build the audience that I want to make. And so then I have 10,000 people that love this brand and then maybe I can you know, crowdfund a web series and then once I have that web series, I can build more audience and then maybe two years I can get to the point where I have enough pre-awareness in the market that I can then 
sell the script to a studio, right? But it's big vision and small execution, I think, is, is the mentality that we have to have. Because if you execute well in a small way with big vision, when you go to scale upwards, because the vision is big, it will more organically scale uh, than if you have small vision and small execution, when, if you try to go scale that bigger, it's going to feel engineered. It's not going to grow right, right? So you have to have, you have to give it room to grow with that initial big vision, but really focus on that small execution to, to establish that brand, establish the audience, attack the market and stay on offense, right? Just like, uh, I think too many people hold their ideas back. And I think in a, in a, in a, in a democratized technolo- technological market with so many distribution platforms, that you have to get aggressive with this stuff and you have to own the brand and build community and build your own audience. And, and, you know, don't be precious about, you know, well, like I don't want to go on TikTok because I don't want to do it. Um, no, that's just not my brand. I'm not a TikTok brand. There's a lot of organic growth on TikTok. Doesn't mean you have to do stupid dances with 13 year olds, but there's an opportunity on TikTok. If you figure out how to contextualize your story into a TikTok extension, all of a sudden, there may be an interesting opportunity to, to get 20,000 fans from TikTok to go listen to your podcast, right? So don't be precious about certain things. And, you know, I know, like, you know, the filmmaker community, like, is concerned about that. But if you, but if you, but if you have, if you have a big vision with small execution and hit it right, it can then organically scale. That would be my big advice. Amazing. Uh, Houston, thank you so much for joining us on the Future of Film podcast. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to second round sometime. So that was my conversation with Houston Howard, recorded as part of Future of Film Incubator 2022. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. And if you want to find out more about Houston or any of our guests, on the show, head on over to futureoffilm.live. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening. And I look forward to seeing you, welcoming you back on the podcast very soon.